chapter 12, and pretty soon it's, your Bible's just going to fall open there because we are crawling through this chapter, um, taking a, a verse at a time, <clears throat> or as the case, last week we took half a verse, and um, we're going to take half a verse again this morning. I figure there's, there's no reason to, to rush through these, um, these admonitions. I have a pastor friend of mine who's preaching through Romans, and he preached Romans 12, 9 through 21 in one week. And um, it was okay. I mean, that's kind of paragraph by paragraph, but I feel like it's good for us just to sit and savor on all of these. It's opportunity for some topical preaching as we just look upon um, just one, one word or one phrase or one idea. Uh, Romans 12.10 is our text. It's really short. Paul writes, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And um, really, I made a decision just uh, last night, this morning, just saying, you know what, we're just going to sit here in the first half of the verse. So that's what we're preaching. Romans 12.10a, only the first half of the verse. It says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Now, the, the admonition to love is one of the most basic commands in all the Bible. Um, it is the center of the whole law. When Jesus was asked what's the greatest commandment, he centered on love, right? Love God, love others. And then he said in Matthew 22, verse 40, on these two commands depend the whole law and the prophets. And that's our call this morning is to love. The whole law, the prophets depend upon love. Now, love's at the heart of Paul's exhortation here to the Romans. It's a, it's a brotherly love. Love one another with brotherly affection. And that's why I'm titling my message this morning, Brotherly Love. Now, at this point, before we get in the commandment, we need to do everything that we can to remind ourselves of the context as we inch our way through Romans 12 to make it clear that, that love is at the heart of the law. Love is not at the heart of the gospel. Not even love for God is at the heart of the gospel, though that is definitely there. It's, it's faith towards God. And the reason, I think, is because love can be sort of a work or something, something we do, whereas faith is basically nothing. We just come to God in faith. Love is our response to the gospel. And believing in God and believing and trusting in Christ, love quickly follows to him as well. But, but see, God's grace comes to us not through love for God. But through faith, whereby we know forgiveness of sins, we're reconciled to God, we become his children by adoption, and we respond to God's grace in love. Now, so I just thought about how to come again afresh, reminding ourselves of that. And so what I did is I just looked, at, looked for love in Romans. And um, I found ten times that love was called upon in Romans 1 through 11. And uh, um, nine of those times... It's all talking about God's love for us. There's only once in Romans 8, 28, which it speaks about those who love God. Just kind of like, like um, just assuming you do, but, but never being a called to love God. Always those whom God loves. So I want to just work through that. So if you can take your Bibles, get, get ready, go to chapter 1, verse 7. Just want to show you the overall emphasis of Romans 1 through 11 is that God has loved us. So you might catch this, that love is our response to him. Romans 1, verse 7, to those in Rome who are loved by God, called to be saints. We are loved by God. God has called us to be saints, that is, pure, pure people. Let Romans 5, verse 5, so flip over there. 
This is uh, just talking about hope. Hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And then verse 8. It's God who demonstrates and shows His love for us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's the love that God has for us. Romans 8.35 is the next place in which love is, is mentioned, except for Romans 8.28 is what I mentioned. But 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And, and the answer there in the context is, is nothing. He, he says it clearly, right? Verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're conquerors, verse 37, through him who loved us. And nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love of God, verse 39. In chapter 9, verse 13, it's not God's love for us, but theologically, it's Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. But there again, you see God's initiating, God's loving. In chapter 9, verse 25, we see it again. It's not the word love, but it's beloved, which is the object of love. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And those who are not beloved, I will call beloved. In other words, those who are not loved, I will call my loved ones. Chapter 11 and verse 28. It's the last place. It's talking about the Jews and um, how they're not believing. As regards the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. They're enemies because they haven't believed in Jesus. But regards election, they are beloved. There it is again. They are loved for the sake of their forefathers. It's 11 chapters. It's talking about God's love for us. Before he talks about our command to love. And during those chapters, Paul's talking a lot about faith. Romans 3.22, just consider all the times he's talking about faith over and over and over again. And it's always our faith in God. Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It's talking about how we believe God and we have that comes, righteousness then comes to us. In chapter 3, verse 25. God put forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And and uh, 26, that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Believing in Jesus is how we get justified, not by by love. But God has loved us and sent his son. Chapter 3, verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or jumping down to verse 30, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. It is it is faith where we are justified and made right. Chapter four and verse five, it, it says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. It, it's the one who believes has his faith counted as righteousness. Or, or chapter four, uh, verse 13, it says the promises to Abraham and his offspring, that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access 
by faith into this grace in which we stand. Again, this faith emphasis. Again, again. Or chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. With the mouth one, um, heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. There again, you have faith making us right before the Lord. So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ, chapter 10 and verse 17. And, and over and over again, you see Romans 1 through 11. It's, it's God's love towards us and our faith towards him. But that all changes in chapter 12 when we, we take this turn. Right? We see in our text, love one another with brotherly affection. We saw two weeks ago, chapter 12 and verse 9, when it, when it said uh, that we let our love be genuine. So he's calling us to let your love be genuine. He's calling us to brotherly affection this week. And then in chapter 13, verses 8, 9, and 10, this command to love is, is there again. He says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. Here you go. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. Any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You just see the exhortation again to love. And it, it hasn't been at all in Romans 1 through 11. And it comes in chapter 12 twice. It comes a couple times in chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. And chapter 14 is going to come up again about how you're going to deal with those who are weak in faith. That have different convictions about the diets and about the, the days. And how that all, all works itself out. And he says in chapter 14 and verse 15. He says, but if you, your brothers, grieve by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. So in other words, the way we walk towards people who have a different sense of days or, or different sense of diets or different convictions about, about debatable matters, he's, he's talking about you need to act in this way so that you are one who, who loves them. Because you can walk in a way that's not loving them. And so I make the same point I've made every time in Romans 12. The, the command to love is not a command to be made right with God. That's done by faith. But rather it's our re- right response to believing in God. The, the right response, right, if, if you don't walk this way, right, is if, if you don't have this response, in other words, if you don't have this response of love towards others, maybe it's because you don't have a faith in God. Because a faith in God will work itself out in a response of of love. So let's keep the priority. God's mercy comes through faith. Our response is love. And that's what's pointed out in our text. Love one another with brotherly affection. Now, what's important this morning is I'm just trying to say, okay, so here's an exhortation to love. Am I just going to preach another message on love? Or what I think is best is maybe take the nuance of this text as opposed to the nuances of other texts and let, let this nuance come here. Um, because this message isn't just another admonition to love. It's the admonition, the way Paul describes this love. Now, the nuance here is brotherly love. Two weeks ago, when we looked at love in verse 9, the, the nuance there was sincere love. It was a genuine love, a, a non-hypocritical love. Okay, are we going here? All right, great. Thank you for your runaround. Thank you, Andrew. Everyone, golf clap for Andrew. All right. <laughs> So the nuance two weeks ago was a sincere love. 
And the nuance here is a, a brotherly love. The nuance here is upon family. It's, it's, a, it's a, a love that brothers ought to have for one another. Now, the Amplified Bible, which is a good Bible translation that really tries to, to translate, but then to bring in a lot more words so as to give you the thrust of the text, says it this way. It says, be devoted to one another with authentic brotherly affection as members of one family. Authentic brotherly affection as members of a family. So you see the, the family nuance is there. The, the brotherly emphasis is there and the love is there. And I'd say this, stories of brotherly love abound. I mean, they're, they're, just, they're just all over the place. I want to tell you about this man, Johnny Ash. Anyone know who Johnny Ash is? Good, good, good. I always love teaching, teaching some new things. Here's Johnny Ash. He was a Marine, United States military. In 1967, he found himself fighting in Vietnam. Uh, in the jungles there where tens of thousands of Americans were killed. And uh, he knew how bad it was. He said this, In Vietnam, they don't shoot any bullets with your name on them. They're all sent to whom it may concern. So he shoots the bullets out there, and he knew that. And, and he had three months left on his tour in Vietnam. And in those days, they would be a year over there, and then they'd come back. And um, he chose, he requested that he not return home after those three months. He wanted to, to stay another year. And, and the reason for that was that he didn't want his brother. And here's his brother, Arthur Ashe. Any of you heard of Arthur Ashe before? Okay, good. He wanted his brother not to come. And the military doesn't want to have two siblings over there, lest one die or two die. Then they got to, have to deal with two deaths. So that's just really difficult. And so Johnny said, I'm going to take my brother's place, and I'm going to be in Vietnam and I'm going to keep Arthur at home. And, and the reason was because Arthur Ashe, what's he good at? Tennis. And uh, here he is. Uh, this is 50 years ago last week in the U.S. Open. And uh, what, what he wanted to do is he, he wanted Arthur to stay at home and to keep up his tennis. In 1967, he graduated from UCLA. That's a good cheer for Yvonne. He graduated from UCLA. And... Uh, through his, his brother, through Johnny's sacrifice, Arthur was able to stay in America and train. He, uh, he worked in the military, uh, so he was in the Army as well, and he kind of worked in the tennis. He was coaching tennis, and so he was about tennis all the time uh, in, in the military. But as soon as Johnny's second 12-month tour of Vietnam was finished, he came home. And he come, came home just in time to see his brother, Arthur Ashe, make history as the first African-American man to win a major tennis championship. September 8th, 1968 is what that should read. I mistyped that. It should be 1968. Like 50 years ago yesterday, first African-American to win a major tennis championship. And tennis has never been the same since. And the world hasn't been the same since because like, like one of those, he's, he's a guy that broke a barrier like, like, like Jackie Robinson. And, and after this, then he, he became whatever, well-known because he was a sports commentator in ABC Sports. He wrote a book chronologuing his, his journey, which he says far more important than any championship that he won. He also was a civil rights supporter. And it all started with a display of his brother showing brotherly love. I'll stay on the field. You stay home and you work at your tennis. Well, that's just one story of many. I'll tell you another story. These guys, Chad and Ryan Arnold, 
I don't think you know who these guys are either. Maybe, maybe you have. But uh, these guys aren't famous. But Chad, who's about 25 years old, went to the doctor for a checkup because his eyes and his skin were, were yellow. And the, the doctor told him that he had primary sclerosing coagulitis, PSC, which targets bile ducts in and outside of the liver. There's no cure. So without the liver taking whatever the toxins or whatever it does away from your body, he's turning yellow. And he, he went to the doctors and they said, there's no cure. You just need to live healthy. And so he, he ate good. He, he was careful with his diet. He exercised regularly. And the doctors even said, you're the most healthy sick person that we have ever seen. Just trying as much as he can. But as much as he tried, his condition deteriorated. In February 2009, his name was placed on a transplant list, hoping for a donor. Um, but 16,000 patients were waiting that year. Only 5,000 livers were coming by way of donor in those times. And so the odds were slim. And so by July, his condition had worsened. He could barely get out of bed, only but for a few hours each day. His skin and his eyes were, were the color of honey. And so rather than waiting, he opted for a, quote, living donor transplant, which is a, a rare procedure in which a segment of liver is taken from a healthy donor and transplanted into the ailing recipient. In just a few weeks, both the old liver and the transplanted liver regenerate, grow back to normal size, providing for long-term regular function for both donor and patient. And so Chad's brother Ryan was very eager about being a donor to show his love for his brother. Um, and and their, their brother, Rod, said this. It was very simple with Ryan. It was all about being there for people. If you were his friend, if you were his brother, it was all in. For him, And when his blood type matched and he was able to be the one, he was all in for his brother with his liver transplant. And so July, Thursday, July 29th, 2010, both Chad and Ryan were prepped for surgery, rolled into surgery. And, and as they're being rolled in, Chad whispered to Ryan, I owe you my life. By 5 p.m., the surgery was done. Two-thirds of Ryan's liver was removed and placed into Chad, whose own diseased organ enlarged almost three times its normal size, was taken out in chunks. Almost immediately, Chad, jaundiced skin, removed to, re- returned to natural color, and his pot belly caused his swollen liver, and which caused by his swollen liver was gone. I just want to read the family updates. I'm not sure this was, um, whatever, 2010, whether Facebook, they were putting on Facebook or whatever. Here, here, here's what it is. Friday, July 30th. 11.59 a.m. Ryan is doing well this morning, groggy from the medicine, but fairly comfortable. It's taken a while for all to sink in, but Chad is functioning with Ryan's liver. It almost doesn't seem real. And here's a picture taken the next day, Friday, July 30th, 11.45 p.m. Ryan was just moved out of the ICU into the transplant floor, so he is now just a few rooms down from Chad. Chad went on two walks today. Up and down the hallway twice. Ryan has been pretty groggy today, which is normal. Saturday, July 31st, 3.44 p.m. Well, today's day three. We've been told from the beginning that this is perhaps the most difficult day, especially for the donor. Things are improving this afternoon, but again last night, Ryan did not sleep well. He's been quite a bit of pain. Sunday, August 1st, 10.18 a.m. Unfortunately, things took a turn for the worse last night. Ryan went code blue and was resuscitated. He is now in critical condition. We ask that you stand in faith and fight with us. Death can't have him. Monday, August 2nd, 10.04 p.m., Ryan went to be with Jesus this afternoon.
That's brotherly love. The one dying for the other. In fact, that's the definition of love. 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What, what, what Ryan did for Chad here is what we ought to do for brothers, being willing to do that. That's what, what Paul is calling us to do for each other. He's calling us to love one another with brotherly affection. The affection that's willing to do that, that's ready to do that, that actually does do that with other people. Now, of course, this isn't the case with every brother, right? Every brother doesn't love one another with brotherly affection. In fact, the first brothers in the world, they didn't love each other with brotherly affection. Cain hated Abel. And even though he had a direct warning from God, he still killed his brother. Near the end of the book of Genesis, you see the same thing. Joseph's brothers did not like their brother. They did not treat him with brotherly affection. Instead, one, one day, they decided to kill him. Only late in the game did they sell him into slavery instead, which you could call a living death. And the Bible abounds with such bad examples of, of unbrotherly love towards one another. When Abimelech went out, he killed his 70 brothers. Or Athaliah. She killed the royal family so she could become queen. Just one. Baby Joash was hid from her ears. But we all know that this isn't how brothers ought to act with one another. They should be so deeply committed to one another that they're willing to lay down their lives for one another. And we just know that's the case, right? So when it says brotherly affection and brotherly love, we just know what that looks like. It, it looks like the Ash brothers. It, it looks like Ryan and Chad. And it looks like a bunch of other examples that we've seen and hear of. And, and, but we know that it's not there how wrong it is. That's why Jesus said, and what will happen when he comes is so awful. He said, brother will deliver brother over to death and father is child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. We just know there's something intrinsically wrong, especially wrong when family turns on each other and they start killing one another and hating one another. So just think, family needs to love one another. So at this point, I want to spend a few moments with you parents really thinking about your children and one of the things you're aiming for with your children. I know that, that in our household, there's one verse that stands above all others. It's, it's in our bathroom on our lower, lower level. It says, I have no greater joy than my children walking in the truth. We are aiming for our children to be walking in the truth. But here, brotherly affection in the fact that so many are not loving one another among siblings, you always hear of sibling rivalry or you hear of dysfunctional families and just parents. Another thing to aim for in the life of your children is, is brotherly love. And one book, I'm just advertising a book here that has helped our family immensely is making brothers and sisters best friends. We have read out loud this book twice in our family and we're right now on our, our third go through it, kind of like as each, as each generation of, of family members kind of kind of come through in an age where they can really think about it. We're just putting this concept before their minds. We want you, Chris, or I'm sorry, Stephanie and uh, SR and David, we want you guys to be the best of friends. We want you guys to exhibit this brotherly love. And we're just pushing for that heart, doing whatever we can so they'd be best of friends. And you kids here, 
you ought to just really think about my best friend needs to be my brother or my sister because you know what? They're going to be around a long time. Friends will come and go or you'll move away someplace or circumstances will happen and you'll, you'll be here. <clears throat> you're not always going to have your friends who are around you, but you're always going to have your family. Even if you're halfway around the world, you're always going to be tied in some way to have your family. And sometimes families just disconnect and don't talk with you, don't have a love for one another. And you will be blessed a thousand times over if you are best friends with your family. And parents, you will be blessed when your children all get along. So this book's written by Sarah and Stephen and Grace Malley. Sarah was 22 at the time of written, and Stephen was 16, and Grace was 12. And, and it is very funny, it's very entertaining, and it's very insightful. We've had many laughs in, in, in reading through this book together. Um, and the cover really tells it all. I mean, see, so there you have a, a house, if you will, and, and you, presumably it's the kids who are, says, Push! Ouch! Yell! Hit! Mine! Give me that! And presumably it's the parents who say, Stop that! You guys fight like cats and dogs! And the cats and dogs are out front, right there in front of the doghouse, and there's purring and meowing. Right? It's obviously funny, but that's typical of the, the sort of humor in the book, and I commend the resource to you, Making Brothers and Sisters Best Friends, subtitle, How to Fight the Good Fight at Home. And uh, I tell you, everything that we long for in our home, <coughs> with our kids walking in the truth, and with our kids loving one another with sibling affection, if you will, brotherly love, is exactly like it should be in the church. That um, Christians should be best friends. I mean, we, should, we should love one another like family. And, and this, is, this is what we read, right? Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Right? Everything that we know about in brothers in the family ought to come into the church. Because, right, we are church. We are family. We are brothers and sisters. Maybe remember the scene toward the end of Mark chapter 3 when Jesus is in the house and, and he's, he's teaching people. And, and so many people are, are coming in, into the house that, that when his mothers and brothers try to come in, they can't get in because of the crowds. But they want to talk to Jesus because they're a little afraid that Jesus is off his rocker. And uh, so they, they try to send a message to him, and they, and they do. They get it successful that, that they told someone who told someone who told someone, or maybe they wrote a note, and it finally got up to Jesus. And I just read Mark tells us this, and the crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and brother are outside seeking you. And Jesus answered them, Who are my mother and who are my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. And he said, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And what Jesus was using there is he was talking about, yes, my family, my mother and brother outside. That's my physical family, but my spiritual family is right here. And for you all, your spiritual family is right here. Who are your brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers? Which is right here. The family of God extends beyond bloodlines. The family of God encompasses all who believe and follow the Lord Jesus. Paul knew this. In the book of Romans, right? Paul makes this clear, right? Look back at chapter 8. We went through here. 
I think we, we emphasize some things. I think um, probably just in the, in the wash of things, we miss this emphasis on the brotherhood. If, if you look here in verse 14, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now, there's a lot that these verses talk about. They they talk about sanctification in verse 14. They, They talk about prayer and intimacy in prayer in verses 15 and 16. They talk about future glory. But don't miss why it's talking about those things. Why it's talking about sanctification and prayer and future glory is precisely because we are children of God. The reason why we're led by the Spirit of God in our sanctification, verse 14, is because we are sons of God. And the reason why we have intimacy with God in our prayer, in our prayers calling God our Heavenly Father is because He is our Father who is willing to hear us. He has adopted us. And the reason we have a future glory to look forward to is because we are an heir. We're a child of God. That means every child is an heir and we are fellow heirs with Jesus. We inherit what Jesus inherits. All predicated upon children of God. Every single one of those verses, 14, 15, 16, and 17, they all are tying this whole aspect about being children of God. And we are children of God. Every single one of us is trusting in Jesus. And and if all of us are children of God, then God is our Father. And what does that make all of us? We are brothers and sisters to be loved with brotherly affection. That's why Paul often refers to the Romans as brothers. I counted ten times in the book of Romans where he uses this term brothers, adelphos. Same word he's using here with a brotherly love. And we don't need to go through all of them. um, But just, just one might be good to, to go through. In fact, even look, look chapter 8, verse 12, right? So then, brothers, we are not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh, right? Brothers, he's talking about there. But let's just look carefully at this one. Romans 12 and verse 1. Paul says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This, of course, is the key verse in Romans where it makes a a hinge from the good to the bad. And I lost it again here, huh? Let's let's try here. Because I'm coming up, uh, I would like some. Let's see, here we go. Okay, good. We're here. Romans 12.1. This is the hinge from Romans 1 through 11. And then 12 and following us all, we've received the mercy of God, and now we apply it as a living sacrifice. But what's easily missed is this little word here, brothers. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. He's calling those in the church of Rome his brothers. Now you think about this. These aren't just Jewish brothers. These aren't national kinsmen. These are like Jews and Gentiles. One of the emphasis in Romans is Jews and Gentiles. So it goes beyond bloodlines. It goes beyond national lines. This is Jews and Gentiles all together as brothers. Now, I, I should also point out here that, of course, this extends to sisters as well. The ESV in the note here in chapter one, uh, chapter 12, verse 1, if you, if you have it there, it says, I appeal to you for brothers. Got a little, little footnote there, and it says, or brothers and sisters. 
And Paul, when Paul says brothers, he's including the women as well. He's, he's including the females. This isn't this is just the way that we talk. We talk about mankind. That's all humans. And you could translate this like some translations do. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters. But it's only one word. It is brothers, but it extends to all of us. We are family. That's why Paul told us in 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 12, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Older man lives like a father. And younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. He's using the family language, Paul is, to describe the, the church of God because we are family. And so I say church family, like to love one another with brotherly affection. And biblical examples of brotherly affection abound. One of the first comes to my mind is, is the affection between David and Jonathan. Just uh, They weren't real brothers, but again, here's the, the idea of, of, of brothers beyond that. Jonathan, of course, was Saul's son and had some, some difficulties there. But Jonathan and Saul, you, um, Jonathan and David, you can just look through 1 Samuel, read about that. But 1 Samuel 18.1 puts it as, as well as any. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. There's an example of, of brothers, not physical brothers, but spiritual brothers being linked like-hearted wise. And they just, they loved one another, right? When Jonathan died, David wept. Or I love the mighty men that are listed in 2 Samuel chapter 23. David's mighty men, all these men who are like bound together with him to, to fight against Saul in a, in, a, in a right way. But there was a time when, when David was the cave of Adullam. And then the band of Philistines was, was camped around him at the valley of, of Rephraim. And David was in the stronghold, and the garrisons of the Philistines were then at Bethlehem. And so he's kind of out in the wilderness, and he's, he's fighting this thing. And David just kind of makes, I sense, kind of an off-the-cuff comment. He said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. But you know who's in Bethlehem? The Philistines are there. But he's just longing for a taste of that water because he's out in the wilderness where the, the water isn't quite so good. It's more stagnant probably. It's, but, but that water there is fresh. And so as he said that, his brothers, with brotherly affection, willing to lay down their lives, says the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and carried it and brought it to David. There's a, a loving one another to sacrifice. If David wants a drink... I'm going to go get a drink, even if it's right in the midst of the enemy camp. Now, David would not drink of it. He poured it out before the Lord. Now, that's kind of another story of why he did that or, or didn't do that. He said, far be it from me, O Lord, that I do this. Shall I drink the blood of men and went to risk their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. I, I don't know whether that's preventative or something in the future. I'm not exactly sure. But the point is that these men loved David so much that they went and sacrificed all for him. Moses and Aaron are examples of real brothers together who minister together. And by the time you get to the New Testament, examples of good brotherly love abound. Jesus and the apostles. When Jesus says, who are my mother and brothers and sisters? He, he said, all of you. I mean, Jesus, really, his earthly family was more a spiritual family. I, I, I sense he felt far more akin to uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus than he did with his real brothers because they, many of them, they didn't believe until he's raised from the dead, his mother was faithful. But he, he had much more of a camaraderie in this earthly life with his non 
related brothers, if you will, those who believed and trusted in him. The apostles, I mean, they stood together through thick and thin. Even when persecuted, they were together praying for one another. See, because it's it's a proverb, right? There's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. These are friends sticking closer than brothers do. Or, Or what about Barnabas? Barnabas was called the son of encouragement, because he was just one who wanted to promote other people. He, he just loved the Apostle Paul, right, bringing him in and giving him standing. He was the one. He sold his property. He was the one who really sought to edify other people. Or Onesiphorus. Right? I love the story that Paul says at the end of 2 Timothy 1. The end of 2 Timothy 1 when he's writing about a peculiar circumstance he found himself in. He said that... Um, that you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. So he's in Asia. The great apostle Paul is on trial. Everyone turns away from him. But his brother, Onesiphorus, he said, May the Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know well the service that he rendered at Ephesus. And so you can just even, even sense that Onesiphorus wasn't ashamed of Paul's chains. All right, when, when people are in prison for years, who comes and visits the people in prison for years? But mothers and maybe brothers and de- who aren't ashamed. Just like there's this, this blood, I just got to go. And I'm going to go and visit whatever, a month, monthly visit or every three months. It's the family that goes. The friends are long gone. They're probably accomplices in crime, people in prison for so many years. But here's Anisiphorus, a friend, a brother, if you will, a Christian brother, if you will, not ashamed of his chains, seeking him out, when all abandoned Paul and went and refreshed him on several occasions. And on top of that, served those in Ephesus immensely. Or, or Timothy. In our youth group on, uh, on Wednesday, I had the privilege to teach that and lead that. And uh, we talked about Timothy in writing to the church at Philippi. Paul said, I want to send to you Timothy. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like you, like him, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven work, worth how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it goes with me, and I trust the Lord that I myself will be coming also. And so he wants to send Timothy because Timothy doesn't look after his own interests. He looks after the interests of others. I mean, that's what love is. Love is not looking at your own interests. It's looking at the interests of others, what humility is. It's really seeking to help them. He says, I want to send Timothy to you to help you in Philippi, but I have needs, and I need to keep him here. He needs to serve me. He says, but I'm going to send you Epaphroditus. Philippians 2.25, I I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he's been longing for you all and has been distressed that you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him and not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So in other words, right, here's here's Epaphroditus. And he, he's a brother, he's a fellow worker, fellow soldier, and, and he's a minister to his need, and Paul is, and, and he's talking about him, and he, and, and he was distressed because they heard that he was ill. Right? And so in their hearing even that things are bad for him, and their affection for him is causing his affection for them, you just see this mutual love go back and forth. And Paul says, 
I, verse 28, I the more eager send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and I may be less anxious. I'm sending this man to you because you've got this mutual concern for one another. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking in his life what was um, to complete what was lacking in your service to me. There's Epaphroditus, just a, a great example of a guy I really cared. That's brotherly love. Biblical examples of that abound. And I think practical examples of that abound as well. I think a great illustration took place yesterday. We had this progressive dinner, many of you heard about. And uh, we had about 30 of us come and be involved in this. We enjoyed our dinner together. We had appetizers in one house. We had a, a soup in a second house. We had a salad in a third house. We had a main course in the, uh, the fourth house. And finally, we ended up with dessert at another home. And every time we drove between lo- locations, you had to drive. You had to ride in a different car. Very enjoyable. Lots of food. Lots of laughs. Thanks to Andy. Lots of laughs. It was very, very fun. It's the, it's the sort of time that really strengthens relationships. We're laughing together. Building that clout so that someday we can cry together. That's what's happening. In many ways, our time together was a, a greater expression, I believe, than our church here on Sunday morning. Here on Sunday morning, right? We're sit, we're, we're singing together. That's wonderful, right? We'll talk to each other in fellowship time. But that was just a time of eating together, of sharing with one another, of talking with one another, of riding with one another. Of, it was really good. Really, we were, we were spending time as a family. Our extended family together. In homes. The church is a family. It's a great illustration. One of the things that struck me was the family resemblance. Oh, not physically. I'm not as tall as Tim Iverson. I'm not as thin as others. I'm a little more round and short. But there's something on the walls that betrayed our family resemblance. The decoration. Stepping into the homes. You couldn't help but to feel you're in a a Christian home. And I'm not sure... Actually, I I do know who we got this memo from, but here's a wall. This is on a wall. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Jeremiah 31.1. This is on a wall. Seek justice, love, mercy, walk humbly with your God. And I just grabbed these off a video, so it's not like I intentionally. I'm just kind of going through, and I say, hey, this is kind of neat. This is kind of neat. And then it started started growing. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Joshua 24.15. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, all things give him thanks. I mean, it's 1 Thessalonians 5.18. Cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. Psalm 55.22. Ask where the good way is and walk in it and you'll find rest for your souls. All right, here's my favorite. Be devoted to one another in love. Like how perfect is that? Romans 12, verse 10. But not only were there verses on the walls, there were, there were crosses on some walls. There were words to him. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Horatio Spafford. There were titles to him like John Newton's Amazing Grace. And here's one of my favorites right over, a, right over a, a, an oven. God, give us Christian homes. Every time you go to cook, there's a, there's a prayer. Now, it's hymn number 457. You want to just turn there? I just want to read through this. This is a great prayer for homes. 457.
God give us Christian homes. Homes where the Bible is loved and taught. Homes where the Master's will is sought. Homes crowned with beauty your love has wrought. God give us Christian homes. Homes where the Father is true and strong. Homes that are free from the blight of wrong. Homes that are joyous with love and song. God give us Christian homes. Homes where the mother in caring quest strives to show others your way is best. Homes where the Lord is an honored guest. God give us Christian homes. God give us Christian homes. Homes where the children are led to know Christ in his beauty who loves them so. Homes where the altar fires burn and glow. God give us Christian homes. God give us Christian homes. And everything is said about Christian homes, right? In the, the spirit of the text today, love one another, brotherly love, with a family love, with a home love, that could be equally applied to the church. So God give us loving family churches where the Bible is loved and taught. Churches where the master's will is sought. Churches crowned with beauty your love has wrought. God give us a strong family church where the father, maybe maybe the pastor is true and strong. A a church, a loving church that are free from the blight of wrong. A a church that is joyous with love and song. God give us this godly, family, brotherly love church. A a church where the mother, perhaps women in the church, in, in their caring quest, strive to show others that God's way is best. This church where the Lord is an honored guest, God give us a brotherly love sort of church. This church where, where children are led to know Christ in his beauty who loves them so. This church where the altar fires burn and glow, God give us this brotherly love sort of church. And I'll say that, that's one of the reasons why, just kind of over and over, I just tell people, I would love to see our Sunday mornings be a family reunion. Right? Where, where the family is, is coming together in the best sense of the word, where it's not dysfunctional, where it's fully functional, where brothers are loving one another, where it's being loved with a, this brotherly love. Because I know that there's going to be a huge blessing in that. When we as a church dwell in brotherly love, in unity, there's, there's a blessing. Turn with me to Psalm 133. And we're, we're going we're gonna to end, as soon as I'm done preaching, singing a, a song from Psalm 133 that Ryan wrote years ago. I'm not sure how many years, six years ago, I don't know. And uh, we wrote this song. I was preaching through the Psalms of Ascent. That is uh, Psalm 120 through 134. And, and Psalm 133 is one of the shorter ones. And Ryan wrote this song. From Psalm 133, and so afterwards, basically, hey, do you want to stay around, and we're going to teach you this song. And so we learned the song, and we sang it, and there's a recording of it. I put in the weekly word. You can listen to it. But here's the blessing that will take place if we really grasp this loving one another with brotherly affection. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. 
It just asserts how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And when brothers are not dwelling in unity, I just say how awful and, and putrid it is. And it's hard when brothers don't dwell in unity. Even when a church, when a church is divided, it's very difficult. But when you have a unified church, there is just, it's good and pleasant. It's delightful. And he compares it here to this uh, anointing day where the high priest was uh, anointed, particularly Aaron, the first high priest was anointed, and oil is coming down upon his head. Just, just this anointing of the high priest is going to bring us to God. Or it's like this mountain stream water where the, the snow comes in Mount Hermon and it's coming down just fresh as can be. Such is the picture of what happens when churches understand this and brothers dwell together in unity. And there God commands a blessing. It's, it's a blessing for us. Life forever. It's just happiness and joy and bliss when we love one another with a, a brotherly affection. That's my call to you. Is the call of Romans 12 Verse 10a is to love one another with brotherly affection. So let's pray and seek the Lord for strength in these matters. Oh, Father, I would pray that you, by your grace, would indeed strengthen us to follow after this simple command. Now, the fact of the matter is that believers in Christ are brothers and sisters. I pray you'd teach us how to act so in the, in the best sense of the word. We've, we've seen brothers who have great relationships. And we've seen those that have bad relationships. But this is talking about the best of the best of brotherly relationships ought to be superseded by the relationship with believers among believers. God, I would pray that your gospel would prevail among us. And that we'd realize that you have given us much mercy. The mercies of God, Romans 12.1. And as we... Uh, read and thought about today in, in, uh, in our prayer meeting. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. God, for a place to work in unity, it needs to be because of mercy granted one to another. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work here in Rock Valley Bible Church to just improve and excel still more in the brotherly love that we have. I, I, I thank you even just for last night in the example of that. I just thank you for the, the men's retreat, and some of that will happen at the men's retreat as well. I just thank you for the, uh, the, the youth retreat at the Cornforths this next week, how it will, will happen there as well. And just would pray that you might allow these times just to, to go and progress at all our small groups that we have going on. God, I think five or six of them. And just, God, would pray that you would, would bless those groups. God, it's really their opportunities to be with one another in in growing times, God, that we can be with each other in good times and in bad times, as we will get here in Romans 12. We need to rejoice with those who rejoice. We need to weep with those who weep. And God, all comes because we're brothers and we're not going to run away from the trouble. But we will come straight on with it and help and serve one another. So God, do your work in us. And I thank you for what you've done. And do it far more, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.